Welcome to the Sword and Staff. I'm your host, Josh Robinson, and joining me today is my co-host, Richie Brock. On today's episode, Richie and I are going to be starting a brand new series for the Sword and Staff on spiritual beings of the Bible, and we think that that's going to lead into all sorts of fun topics, uh, things such as angels and demons, and then eventually, here over the next couple of weeks, to kind of show our hand here a little bit, uh, things like aliens, cryptids, all sorts of things that absolutely. Look, yeah. So this is going to be a really fun episode, probably going to be a little bit on the longer side, but I think that the content that we have today is going to be really, really foundational for folks who don't understand the spiritual beings of the Bible and who are having maybe difficulty understanding things going on uh, in, uh, well, for lack of better words, in our culture today, uh, things yeah. with like UFOs and then not only that, but things like how do the cryptids fit into things like this, right? Things like, like, uh, like uh, Bigfoot and Mothman. And uh, like, it's interesting because yeah. those things may not seem related, but whenever you get the, the biblical worldview uh, under your belt, you'll actually see that all of these things fit together quite nicely and they yep. it gives you a framework to kind of make sense of all of these things so should be an interesting episode i think i don't think that there's going to be anything out there quite like what we're going to release today um yeah there's, there's tons of resources out there by people great people out there like mike heiser and stuff like that who kind of sums up all the different spiritual beings of the bible but i'm not um i'm not aware of one episode that's going to kind of put all of them together in one episode kind of the way that this one's going to, and it's going to have its own unique spins and twists on things that you may not hear in other places. So should be, should be unique and should be helpful. I think so. Yep. All right. Well, to get us started, um, I'll, I'll kind of sum up the biblical story for us here, starting off in Genesis chapter one. So we're, we're introduced in Genesis chapter one, uh, to this God who creates out of nothing, right? Uh, he creates, what's been called ex nihilo. And that just simply means out of nothing. And we're introduced to him in Genesis one. We read that in the beginning, the God, uh, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and it was void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So that's how we're introduced to the God of the Bible, right? Yeah. The interesting thing is that in Genesis one, just a few, few verses down in verse 14, uh, really verses 14 through uh, 29. Uh, no, that's actually not 29. It's 14 through uh, 19. Uh, we learn that God makes the lights in the expanse 
of the heavens. So here's what the text says. It says, God, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs, and let them be for seasons, and for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, and give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. Okay? And then God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, at face value, that seems really straightforward, doesn't it? Like, yeah. it's, okay, well, God, God puts the sun and the moon and, and the stars in, in the heavens, and that's how we get the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, th- that's true. But below the surface of this text, there's actually a lot more things going on. This is actually also the creation of spiritual beings. Uh, sun, moon, and stars, um, specifically the host of heaven or, or angelic beings. And let me show you exactly what I mean by this. Um, Job 38, uh, 38, 7 actually talks uh, about this a little bit and kind of gives a little bit of, of commentary on it. So I've got my Bible here and I'm just kind of flipping and turning to different places to kind of discuss some of this. But uh, I want you to see that there's a little bit more here going on uh, just beneath the surface. So Job 38, 7, it says it this way. So it says, uh, so this is God. Uh, He's answering Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Right. So we're talking here. This is creation language. Right, we're talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Like, where were you, Job, whenever I laid the foundations of the earth? He says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Right? Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And, and who laid its cornerstone? Right? So he's like, was you here whenever I, I did all this? And then he says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy right so we have here yep. that the morning stars are singing and then we've got some parallelism going on here in verse seven actually if you have an esv bible it'll it's uh indentation will actually note that for you that it's a it's parallelism uh because it's indented just beneath that uh that first line in verse seven but uh par- morning stars and sons of god singing and shouting for joy those are, those are being paralleled together. So what's going on here is the morning stars are the same beings as the son of God, sons of God. And they're talked about as being stars, right? And so they're, as God is, is sinking the bases of the, the, the earth and he's doing this creative work, this is after he's created the, the, you know, the sun, moon, and the stars. They're singing, right? They're, they're, they're uh, rejoicing, Job says. So there's, there's much more going on here than just the creation of sun, moon, and stars. We actually have spiritual beings being uh, talked about here. Absolutely. So another passage that talks about angelic beings in this way is Revelation 12. Now, everybody's familiar with Revelation. Even if you're a non-Christian listening to our podcast, everybody knows what Revelation is, right? It's the big, <laughs> yeah. it's the big book that talks about the end of the world and you know all that stuff, scary stuff. But it's interesting because in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the book, in chapter 12, there's actually a recounting kind of of the fall of Satan, okay? And so here's what it says in Revelation 
uh, 12, 1 through 4. Uh, I'll, I'll read it just to add a little context. A great sign appeared in the heaven. There was a woman clothed with the sun. The moon was under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. So we've got sun, moon, and stars going on here in this passage. Uh, she was pregnant, and she was crying out, and she was in birth pains and agony and giving birth. And another great sign appeared in heaven. Behold, it was a great red dragon. Okay, obviously this is reference to Satan. Yep. Uh, it was a great red dragon. This is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and it had seven heads, and it had ten horns on its head, and he had seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So now we know that that's uh, in reference to Satan whenever he falls. He takes a third of the angels with him, right? Most people know that story and have heard that story. But it's interesting that these angelic beings here are pictured as stars, right? So again, going, looking back at Genesis 1, 14 through 19 now, it kind of adds a, a little bit of a, a lens to look at this through again, right? We're, we're saying yeah. that it's not just the creation of sun, moon, and stars, but spiritual beings who are ruling on God's behalf over the creation um, in that way, right? So we'll, we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go along today. But um, so... Now, I want to show you, too, that also the, the writer of Genesis, Moses, also, um, this, isn't, this isn't something that we're just reading in later on, right? Actually, I'm going to show you now in Genesis 2-1 that Moses actually understands this in the same exact way. And I think this is a verse that's read over a lot and that most people don't pay attention to, but it's really, really important. So in Genesis 2-1, Moses sums up the creation week. And listen to what he says. In two one, he says, "Thus the heavens and the earth were finally finished, and all the host of them." <laughs> wow! Right. So even Moses, looking at the creation week and the creation of the heavens and the earth, he sees that it's not just the heavens and the earth that are complete, but also the whole host of them. So even Moses, who who is writing Genesis uh, and writes the creation of the sun, moon, and stars under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Even he knows that there is more going on here in 14 and 19 through 19 than just sun, moon, and stars. It's also the creation of the host of heaven. So yep. you got anything you want to say before we move on? So that's the first section. Okay. This is where, where the host of heaven comes from angelic beings. We're actually introduced to them. If we have the eyes to see in Genesis chapter one, and then in, in chapter two. So you got anything you want to add to that before we move on any, anything um, that you've seen in your your past uh, being in the occult, anything that might relate to that, anything like that? Um, not really, not off the top of my head, not right now. You're, you've done an excellent job of laying it out so okay. far. Okay, well, good deal. All right, so th that's the first set of spiritual beings that we're, we're introduced to, right? The host of heaven. Now, the, the next characters that we're going to be introduced to are uh, the seraphim and the cherubim. Now, they are not the same as the, the host, the, the, the angels. They, these are different spiritual beings, and they serve different purposes. And we may talk about that a little bit more as well. So in Genesis chapter 3, which is the fall narrative, we are introduced in the first verse to a character called the serpent. Right? Everybody knows the serpent, right? It's Satan, right? Everybody, everybody knows this. And Satan is what? He is a spiritual being. Yeah. 
So it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of, of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay. Now, lots of people, now I, I'm preaching through Genesis right now, right? We've been preaching yeah. through Genesis now for several months in our local church. And uh, whenever I preach through this text, one of the things that I brought up is that um, many, many people over the centuries have debated what the serpent actually is. Okay. Like, yeah. Like one of my heroes, James Jordan, who I've learned how to read the Bible from, believes that the the oh, serpent man. is a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and, and I get it though because he has a certain view and that he's trying to to reconcile with Genesis, yeah, and that kind of thing. So, I, so I get it. Um, but I actually think that the Bible gives us a clue as to who this spiritual being is. And I, and I don't think that it's actually a dinosaur. And I also, another really popular view that you'll see out there is that it was a, uh, a, a serpent um, who people believe once had the ability to, to stand and to walk and to speak. Um, that's, I think that that might be one of the, the main, more mainstream views in evangelicalism. Um, and people actually think that there might be somewhere out in the fossil record somewhere um, you might be able to find a serpent from this time where you might be able to find them that had legs and I guess a voice box and you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, not laugh, you know, not, not, not poking fun at anybody who holds that view or anything like that. But anyway, um, I, but I, I, here, here's the reason why I'm laughing because I think that the Bible actually gives us a much more coherent um, option than those two views. Okay. Um, I think that, that I think that one of them is trying to read science back into the Bible. I think that's what James B. Jordan's view does. Um, even though I'm very, I'm very appreciative of him. And I think that the other one is actually anti-science in some ways. Like we've yeah. never found, we've never found a serpent with a, with a, <laughs> a vocal, a vocal box, right. To where it can talk yeah. and, that's got legs. Um, we got to remember here, right? This is Satan. Satan is a spiritual being, right? So he's not, he's not a, a serpent. He's definitely not a serpent with legs with a voice box. Actually, we actually see um, similar language used throughout the Bible about serpents. So in the ancient Near Eastern context in which the Bible was written in, there was a spiritual being called a seraphim. And you, you've, and you can see depictions of it in other ancient Near Eastern religions, like in Egypt and you know, other places surrounding Israel. But here's the way that it was pictured. It was pictured as a flaming serpent who had wings, right? And yeah. these were, they were throne guardians. They, 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 they guarded, like if you look at uh, other comparative like if you do comparative myths, um, looking at like some of the Babylonian and Mesopotamian myths out there, um, they had similar stories and they had serpent beings like this, serpentine beings who guarded the throne room or who guarded sacred space. And it's actually the same in the Bible. The Bible has the same, this same view. And we actually see one of those places that we see that is in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. So in Isaiah 6, we actually are introduced to a spiritual being called a seraphim. And a seraphim is pictured in the scriptures as a fiery serpent. 
with six wings that guards the throne of God. Listen to this. Okay. So this is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. This is the vision that's like, if you've ever been to like any church church conferences before you've got like a mission Sunday and the people were trying to gear up people to get excited about missions and to go yeah, on yeah. missions. Right. This is the, this is the chapter that's usually read, but most people don't pay any attention to the weird stuff going on in it. Right. So, but there's some weird yeah. stuff going on in it. And this is where we really get a clear picture of, of the seraphim. And I'm going to make the connection between the seraphim and the serpent here after I finish. Um, but it's interesting. So Isaiah, he sees a vision of the Lord and it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face with two. He covered his feet and with two, he flew and one called to the other and said, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then it says, and then the foundations of the threshold shook to the, and the, at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I'm lost for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So you've got this idea of, okay, you've got the throne of God. Okay. Then you have these seraphim, these spirit, spiritual beings, right? Who have six wings. And the interesting thing is whenever you look up this word in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word seraph, right? Seraph or seraphim. And it means in Hebrew, fiery serpent. Yep. <laughs> and so you have these fiery serpents uh, who with six wings guarding the throne of God. Okay. And you can actually see uh, some grammatical connections there between the two words, seraph or seraphim and serpent, right? Yep. They start off with the, the same, uh, the same first part. You've got serpent. Ser a fim. So there's a grammatical connection between the two of them. And um, so, and, that, and that, that actually explains why the serpent is in the garden to begin with. Why, why is Satan in the garden? Why is this serpent there? Well, we're going to see here in a minute with another spiritual being called the cherub that this is actually the throne of God. Eden is the throne of God on earth, right? We, we actually, yeah, we actually learn in Genesis uh, three after the fall that like this place, it's, this is the place where God comes and walks in the cool of the day, right? This is, this is, this is where God dwells at on earth. So there, where God is at and where his throne is at, there are spiritual beings there with him because they guard his throne. Um, so, and that's what the seraphim does. It, it guards the throne of God. That's its purpose. That's what it was created for. Now, this seraphim or this serpent um, actually rebels against God, even though he's there to guard the throne. And he also leads the man and the woman astray. Now, this, these aren't the only passages that, that use seraph as, uh, with this uh, in this way, as, as seraphim. Uh, there's another passage in Numbers 21 
Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And the word seraph in Hebrew is actually used there as well. And it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting what's going on there. So I'll, I'll read that one for us too. So it's uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And so this is the, uh, the story about the bronze serpent where Moses lifts up the bronze serpent and the people look at it and they're healed, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting uh, to read that, that unit. It says, uh, from Mount Hor, they set out on the way to the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way and spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent, get this, fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the fiery serpents there that God sends in Hebrew is seraph. (laughs) Seraphim. So... This is the serpent in the garden, the fiery serpent. He is a seraphim, which, which also, so that makes sense of why he's there. He's a throne guardian. Yeah. But, um, we're going to see another throne guardian here in a minute. Um, but he's a throne guardian. So that's why he's in, in Eden to begin with. And it also makes sense of his curse, right? A lot of people, and this is where some of the weird, weird science stuff comes in. But the first curse that God pronounces in the fall is to the serpent. And listen to the curses that he gets pronounced upon. He says, because you have done this, you've led the woman and the man astray, right? He says, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Serpents already crawl on their bellies. Yeah. We have nothing in the fossil record that says that they don't. Um, We don't have serpents with legs, right? He says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of the days of your life. So why is it that God casts a being down that already crawls on its belly. Well, it's because yeah. it's more than a serpent. It's because this is a spiritual being who once had six wings and guarded the throne of God and had the ability to go between heaven and earth. And now he is cast down to the earth, like Revelation 12 says, and now he will crawl on his belly. Makes sense of the curse. I think, that's, I, I think that's a way better reading of what's going on in the curse yeah, out of all out of all the interpretations I've heard, that I mean, you can look at that passage. It just makes sense. It makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah. So this this spiritual being, he no longer has the ability um, to go between heaven and earth. He no longer is going to guard God's throne. Right? He's going to be cast down to the earth. And so now there's a there's another spiritual being that we're introduced to in at the end of Genesis chapter three. Uh, which is called the cherubim or the cherub. And like the seraphim or the seraph, the seraph, he is also a throne guardian as well. Now there's another being a spiritual being mentioned in the Bible later on called a throne. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas mentions that in his hierarchy of angels, his choir of angels in his summa theologiae. Um, He mentions that uh, he said, he says that the three highest beings, in the heaven, in the angelic hierarchy, are the first the seraphim, uh, then the throne, then the cherub. Or maybe I, I might have those two mixed up there at the beginning. I'd have to at the end. I'll have to look at at his hierarchy. But basically, he says these three beings guard the throne of God. So we're not going to touch on thrones a whole lot because that's later on in the New Testament. Um, and so we're just kind of focusing on the first few chapters of, of Genesis here. But so thrones is, is one of them that would fit into this category of throne guardian as well. But the next one that we are explicitly introduced to is the cherub. 
And so, okay, so here's what's going on now. So God's just uh, pronounced the curses on the man and the woman. Now he's going to exile them from the throne, from, from his presence, from the garden, okay? And so it says, the Lord God said, behold, the man and the woman has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take, take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So basically what's going on is God puts another throne guardian here to guard his throne. He exiles the man and the woman so that they don't continue to eat from the tree of life and live forever because that's the thing that's granting to them uh, immortality in this story, right? We know that Adam and Eve, don't, they, they weren't created to die. Death is a part of the curse. Um, and so the thing that was giving to them life is this sacramental tree of life that is imparting the life of God to them. Okay, And so now they've been exiled from it, and God puts another throne guardian there to guard the way back to the throne, to the Garden of Eden. And it's called the Cherubim. And he has a flaming sword, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Definitely. A lot better than the flying baby you see bouncing around on clouds in pop right. culture today. Right. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Usually whenever you see pictures of cherubs and cherubim, they're usually pictured. And I, I, I know this happened throughout uh, medieval, you know, medieval, the medieval church. Um, they get pictured as like little chubby babies right? <laughs> who are yep. floating on yep. clouds. Yeah. Well, this cherub is pretty savage. He has a flaming sword and he's guarding the throne of God. So, all right. So that's the second group of spiritual beings that we've been introduced to in this episode. Okay. So we've been introduced to the heavenly host. Um, sometimes in scripture, they're called, you know, divine counsel, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, there's angelic beings here as well. Some of this language used for, for angels and that kind of thing. Now we've been introduced to the throne guardians, right? Which are the, the seraphim, the cherubim. And then we've been uh, also briefly introduced to thrones too. We didn't touch on that a whole lot, but, but we know that those are out there. Um, and Thomas Aquinas and the church has made note of them historically in the hierarchy of angels. So, okay. Now here's where things are going to get interesting. Yeah. Uh, they've already been interesting so far, but, uh, here's where things are going to get interesting. Okay. So the story picks up with Adam and Eve, right? Then you have the, the birth of Cain and Abel. And we all know that story, right? Cain kills Abel. And then he's cast out of the land of Eden. And he goes out into the world and he plants a city called, uh, he goes out into the land of Nod. There he builds a city. And then we learn that um, he has descendants and these descendants corrupt the world, right? And this story, the story of him and then the story of Seth who would be born to Adam and Eve, um, th this story of, of Cain's lineage corrupting the world runs all the way up to Genesis chapter 6. Okay. Then we also learned there's a lineage of, of righteous people um, who, who come from the lineage of Seth, who is the third son born to Adam. Okay. And that's where Noah comes from. He comes from the righteous lineage of Seth. And that's also where Enoch comes from and, and some of these other saints that are listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews. I think it's 11. Um, so that's the story leading up to Genesis 6. Now, in Genesis 6, we come back in, oh boy, we come back uh, in, in uh, contact with some spiritual beings we've already been introduced to in Job 38, which are the sons of God, 
Okay. Now we've already talked about them in the first uh, section of spiritual beings, right? Yeah. They are the morning stars. They are the ones singing over God's creation. Um, so we're, we're, they're about to play a part in the story again. So in Genesis chapter six, here's what happens. Okay. So the earth has been corrupted by the lineage of Cain. They've been kicked out of the garden. They've been kicked out of the land of Eden. Now they've polluted and corrupted the world. Okay. And so it says, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, the daughters were born to the son. uh, It says, and daughters were, were born to them. The sons of God, who we've already been introduced to, um, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim or giants, the uh, ESV notes, um, or giants were in the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and that it had grieved him to the heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land and man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven. For I am sorry that I've made him, but, the, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, okay, here's what's going on. Okay. <laughs> so we have the sons of God who were introduced to in uh, Genesis 1, 14 through 19 and also Job 38, 7. Uh, we learned that these are spiritual beings, right? We already saw that they were. Uh, I, I'm going to give us another passage from Job real quick that also proves that the sons of God are not human, not human, um, not human beings. They are spiritual beings. So um, Job 1 also talks about um, these spiritual beings as well. We see Satan, you know, going uh, back and forth from heaven to earth and, you know, that kind of thing. And um, we also have mentioned in, uh, I think it was, thought it was Job 1. Let me, let me look here. I should have pulled these up on my computer instead of, instead of uh, just, uh, (laughs) instead of just doing it this way. Let me, uh, let me find it here. Hold on. I got to find it here on the, uh. Uh, I got to find the other passage. Yes, yeah, Job 1 6. I thought it was. I was just overlooking it. Um, so, so Satan, this is a, a story about Satan, God, and Job, right? And so it says that. Um, yep. So we're introduced to Job. We're introduced to his character and that he's a wealthy man. And then it says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came from among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered to the Lord, uh, been going to, uh, to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. He is blameless and he is upright. Uh, he is an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So we see here in also in Job 1, right, that, that the sons of God are presenting themselves before the Lord and Satan is, is with them as well. Right. And Satan is a spiritual being. So these are the same sons of God who are in Job uh, 30, 
38.7, right? The, the ones who are the, the morning stars who were there whenever God created the heavens and the earth. Um, so the sons of God, to turn this back around now, the sons of God in Genesis 6 are these same sons of God. Nowhere is the title sons of God, which is bene Elohim in Hebrew, nowhere is this phrase used in the Old Testament in reference to human beings, okay? Yeah. We've, we've already seen multiple passages here that is referring to them as spiritual beings who have access to the presence of God. So here's what's going on in the flood story now, after we've got that background. Okay, these spiritual beings come down and they take human wives for themselves. Okay? Take human wives for themselves. And they produce offspring called Nephilim or giants as a result of these of these uh this cohabitation really interesting right oh yeah now now some of the questions that people may have is like okay how does an angel do that right well you know how does that happen well um obviously we all affirm the incarnation who are christians right god who is spirit impregnates um mary right so there's nothing wrong. There's nothing in the Bible that says a spiritual being cannot impregnate a human, right? If you if you want to to use that as an argument, say, well, angels don't have, you know, they're spirits. They can't. Well, okay. Well, if you're going to do that, if you're going to take it far enough, you're going to end up denying the incarnation. Yeah, Christian. Um, so that's not a very good argument. Um, so how does that happen? I, I have no clue. It's a mystery. Bible doesn't say how it happens. Um, but we, we see that, that angels at times do take on bodies. So in the, the narrative of uh, Abraham going to save his nephew from Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroys it, you know that, um, there are three angels who come to Abraham, and they're pictured as having bodies. They're walking around. They actually have a meal with uh, Abraham. And, um, actually it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's in, uh, I think it's in Genesis 18. Um, yeah, it says the Lord appeared to him by the Oaks of Mamre sat at the door of the tent, in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes. Um, but we see that there are, um, some spiritual beings here in this passage. And one of the things that's interesting is that, um, there are men from Sodom and Gomorrah who, um, who surround the tent of Abraham and they see the men who are actually angels there with him and they're, they're wanting to have sexual relations with them. So they like, apparently to these men from this time, these look like normal beings, right? Like, like they are capable of that kind of thing. So it's, it it appears that, that, that angels are able to take on human like bodies at, at points in scripture. So perhaps that's a way that they're able to do it. I don't know. Scripture doesn't really say, but we do know that, that God impregnates Mary and that spirit that is capable or that is a possibility. Right. So, yeah. All right. So, so that's what's going on here in this passage. So the sons of God impregnate the daughters of man. They have, (laughs) they have giants called Nephilim as, as a result. And they go on and they're called the mighty men of renown, right? These are the culture makers, Um, you know, leading up to the tower of Babel, we're introduced to a, Nephilim giant named Nimrod who goes and he founds Assyria and he goes and he founds Babylon. Um, right. This is, this is interesting stuff going on here now. Okay. There's also a passage in, in numbers 1333 that talks about the Nephilim after the flood. We might hit on that a little bit later. Okay. But here's, here's some interesting thing. Okay. So the Nephilim aren't like you and I, 
right? Right. They're not like you and I. They're they're the product of a forbidden mixture, right? Of human and angelic beings. So whenever they die, they don't go to the same place that you and I do, right? They they don't go to heaven, right? Because they're a forbidden mixture. And God hasn't uh, come for the final judgment yet, and he hasn't casted um, his enemies into the lake of fire yet. So that leaves them to go to one place. They're residing here on earth. And actually, this is where the Bible's theology of the demonic starts. Absolutely. <laughs> that might be shocking to people. That's going to be shocking to a lot of people. Yeah. So most people think that demons are fallen angels. And I can see yeah. why you would think that. They're the product of fallen angels. Yeah. Right? Or, or fallen sons of God. But they are not. They are not um, fallen angels. They are unclean, the unclean spirits of this forbidden mixture called the Nephilim, right? Um, and the Bible actually talks about that. So it's, it's interesting. Um, in the Bible, they, uh, the, this giant group, they get other names attached to them. Um, they, they get uh, some titles called like the Anakim. There's a giant, apparently a giant named Anak, and so he starts a tribe called the Anakim. Um, then they also get called at other times the Rephaim. And, um, which is, which is really interesting. Um, but some of these passages that we see this, I'm going to flip to a few of them here. So you just guys got to bear with me. Um, for whatever reason, I chose to kick it old school and go with a, a, <laughs> a real Bible instead of something digital. Um, and, uh, give me just a second here. We'll flip to, we'll flip to this numbers passage first in numbers, uh, 1333. Uh, we see that the uh, the Israelites run into the Nephilim again um, whenever they go to uh, whenever they go into the Promised Land. They send spies into Canaan to spy out the land, and then they said, "But uh, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let 'Let us go at once and occupy the land, for we are well over, able to over, overcome it.'" Uh, then the men who had gone up and said, we are not able to go against the people. They are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people a bad report of the land they had spied out. They said the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people. Uh, and there we saw in it a people of great height. There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak. So there's where we start to get into the, the Anakim, the, yeah. the you know, name. These are the sons of Anak. They are Nephilim, right? Uh, he said, he said, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves uh, like grasshoppers. And so uh, we seemed like that to them in comparison to their heights. So, okay. So we're starting to see some things here. Like the Nephilim are like, this is an ongoing problem. Even after the flood, we have these giant clans. This is, this is obviously where, where Goliath comes from as well. We all know that yeah. Goliath is a giant that David goes up to face. Um, and so he's, he's a part of the, the Nephilim tribe as well. And that gets played out a little bit in Joshua. There's a giant clan clan that gets left in Gath and Goliath is Goliath from Gath. So he's one yeah. of the, that's how Goliath survives. But uh, anyway, so, all right. So we've got some, some names that get, get attached to these characters here, right? So we've got the Nephilim. Now we've seen that they're the, called the sons of Anak, which is where they get the name Anakim at. And then in Deuteronomy, 
In Deuteronomy 13, 33, we learn of another giant named Og, which is a pretty sweet name. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If I was if I was gonna write a story and create a villain, I'm naming I'm naming yep, that Og. would be it. Og. Yeah. But in 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 uh Deuteronomy, uh Deuteronomy sorry, it's uh Deuteronomy three eleven, not thirteen eleven. Uh in Deuteronomy three eleven, we learn uh he's the king of Bashan. Um and in verse um verse Thir- uh, 11 here it says this og uh, for only og the king of bashan was was left of the remnant of the rephaim so now we have another atta- name attached to these giants right he is a rephaim it says behold his bed was a bed of iron is, is it not in rabbi of the ammonites nine cubits was its length and four cubits was its breadth uh, according to the common cubits and so, yeah, so he's got this big iron bed that he sleeps in. Um, there may be some other things going on with that bed as well. But uh, Og is a giant. He is from the Nephilim, yep. and he's a, from uh, a group. Uh, he is a remnant of what's called the Rephaim. Okay. Now, what's interesting is this term, Rephaim. In Isaiah 26, 14, it gets used in a very interesting way. Okay. So the word Rephaim appears there in Isaiah 26, 14, and it's used there to talk about dead spirits, shades, that type of thing, evil spirits. So listen to what it says there in this verse. It says they are dead. That's what Rephaim means. The dead ones. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. Right and they will not arise. At the end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all of their remembrance. So there we see, uh, see, we see that, right? That's the word there, dead, uh, you know, shades. That's, that's Rephaim. So we've got something going on now more than that. Shades in the ancient world were dead spirits, unclean spirits, evil spirits that resided. And the, the ancients yeah. called them the shades. And you, you actually see that in, in other places like Greek mythology and other, other myths out there, right? Yeah, it's a term used heavily in the occult as well. That's why I first heard the term the shades. I mean, in uh, Conjuring Magic, uh, the foot soldiers that work the magic and the spells of the, of the occult community, they call them the shades. That's so you have the, the magician that sets the intention, and then you have the shades that are called upon to actually do the footwork. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's fascinating. So you're literally calling upon the spirits of the deceased Nephilim yeah. <laughs> to, do, to do magic work for you. That's, oh, man, that's fascinating. Um, this is why I love these conversations. You're not going to get these types of conversations anymore. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So, uh, all right. So that's Isaiah 26, right? And then Isaiah 14, 8, the word uh, Rephaim comes up again and it's in verse eight um i thought it was in verse eight um yeah 14 8 there it talks about uh one second yeah i think it's uh yeah yeah it's for actually verse nine it says uh sheol beneath is stirred up so sheol is the underworld right this is where yeah. this is the place you don't want to 
you, you know, you, this is where evil spirits reside. It's you think of the underworld and you think of chaos and you know, that kind of thing. That's how, what you're going to think about with the underworld in the ancient world. Right. Yeah. And it says in verse nine, Sheol is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. <laughs> These spirits are going to come up and greet you. All, all who were leaders on the earth, it says. So it says, Sheol is stirred up, right? The, it's, the shades are roused to come and greet you. And who are they? All who were leaders on the earth. So it's the mighty men of renown, right? Yep. The, the culture makers, the Nephilim. It wow. raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. Right, so it's 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 bringing to mind the picture of Nimrod, who founds Assyria, Babylon, you know that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so that's what's going on now. Okay, so we've got this established. Okay, we've got this established. We've got Nephilim, who are also called Anakim, Rephaim, and we see in Scripture. This isn't just my thought. This isn't our thoughts or our opinions, right? This is right. Like this is what the Scriptures say, right? Whenever they die. They become the shades, the dead spirits, the spirits of the kings that rise up from Sheol to meet you, right? Now, this sets the backdrop for the, for the New Testament, right? So Jesus comes on the scene, and we'll start off in there, here in the Gospel of Mark, the New Testament. Jesus comes on the scene, and the very first thing that Jesus does in the gospel of Mark is he, uh, the way is prepared for him. He's baptized. He goes up, he defeats Satan on the Mount. And then afterwards he comes down the mountain and he immediately starts casting out unclean spirits. (laughs) (laughs) So, so these unclean spirits that Jesus cast out, uh, one of them particular is in, uh, Mark three, 22, Mark three, 22. Um, they, uh, they, it's, it's interesting. Uh, hold on a second. I'll read that here in a second. But, uh, in the gospel Mark, he comes out and he starts immediately casting out demons and does that. And these demons, they're called unclean spirits. Who are, why are they called unclean? It's not because they forgot to wash their hands. <laughs> yeah. Take a shower. It's because they are the same dead spirits, the shades, the evil spirits, the 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 un, the, the spirits who come from the unclean mixture of the Nephilim exactly. and the the daughters of men. These yep. are the same spirits that were there then, right? And so Jesus comes and he starts casting them out of people. So why are they? Which also makes sense of possession, right? Yeah. Like, why do these spirits want to possess people? Well, they it's were once being embodied. Once, yeah, they yeah. were once they were once embodied, right? And that, so they were seeking re-embodiment through a host. Absolutely, All right? And so Jesus comes, he casts out some demons. Uh, then he gets accused of they get he gets accused of casting out demons. They're called demons uh, here, uh, but he gets caught. Uh, he gets ca- accused of being the prince of demons and casting them out by the prince of demons. So just really interesting things going on here in the gospel of Mark. But that's where unclean spirits and and demons come from in the Bible. They are equated. So that's what he's been doing, right, Uh, in the gospel of Mark. In 22, uh, the scribes, they come down from Jerusalem, and they're, they're questioning him, and they're accusing him, and they're actually blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. 
um, he's been casting out unclean demon or unclean spirits. And the interesting thing about that is they, they themselves, the biblical, the people who are recorded in the Bible call these unclean spirits demons says he is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of, of demons. He casts it's by the prince of demons that he casts out the demons. So yep. the demons are not fallen angels. According to the Bible, the, they are the, uh, these unclean spirits who get traced back to the whole sons of God, Nephilim, Rephaim, all of that. So, okay. All right. So that's interesting, right? This is so, so far we've been introduced to the heavenly host, you know, angels, that whole thing. Um, we've been introduced now to the seraphim and the cherubim. Um, we've been introduced again. Well, we've already talked about the sons of God, but now we've been introduced to the Nephilim, uh, the Anakim and the Rephaim and demons. So this is where demons come from. Now there's a, there's, there's another, there's another category of spiritual beings that comes from this event as well. Okay. The Bible kind of assumes it. It doesn't necessarily talk about it. Um, you actually can find it in first Enoch, um, which is a, it is a, uh, a writing outside of the Bible that is all that is referenced by biblical writers. Yeah. Like, uh, for example, Jude quotes, uh, Enoch, uh, Peter in second Peter alludes to first Enoch as well. Um, this was a writing that they were reading. I don't think that they think that it was scripture or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's, it's basically like this. Um, I, we read books that aren't scripture, right? Uh, Not everything we read is, is the Bible, but it influences the way we view the world, right? Doesn't mean we quote it authoritatively like the Bible. It's the same thing going on with first Enoch, right? They, this is literature that was going around in their time. Um, and they were reading it, and it informed the way that they viewed the world. So the next spiritual being that gets introduced here is the elemental spirit. This one's really going to turn some heads. I know <laughs> already today we've had some pretty strong reactions to it. Mm. So here's how the so now Richie, you you were in the you were in the occult world. So elemental spirits is something you're probably familiar with. Yeah. Um, not necessarily something that I was that familiar with, but, um, people who are in the occult world will probably be familiar with this. Okay. So the elemental spirits find their origin, uh, in the biblical worldview. Um, and in this, uh, second temple period worldview that was around when Jesus, uh, lived. Um, this is where they, they thought that they found their origin from. So here's what happens. So we have the whole sons of God event, which we just talked about from Genesis chapter six. Um, so what happens is God in first Enoch, um, he cast, he cast these being these, these sons of God out of heaven. Some of them he chains and he puts in Tartarus, which is in the lowest part of the underworld in gloomy darkness. Peter actually talks about that in second Peter. So he's making, he's alluding to what's going on here in Enoch. Um, he binds them in chains and gloomy darkness, Peter says, but then some of them, he doesn't cast into gloomy darkness. Some of them he kicks out and he's, and they end up landing on various parts of the earth. So some of them, it it talks about lands in the rivers and in the oceans. Some of them land in the woods and the forests. Right, some of them land and stay in the sky. So you can see that they're associated with the elements. Right, you've got like, like uh, earth, water, wind. Right, and so this is their origin. Right, it comes from from this event, this Genesis six event, and this is how they end up 
this is why they end up called uh, called elemental spirits. Now, now the Bible makes reference to elemental spirits, and it's because they're working with this worldview in mind. Some of these people have read Enoch. Uh, we know that already, but some of the the passages that we see the elemental spirits talked about in as uh, there's a couple here. One's in one's in Galatians. Um, the other is in um, Colossians, Colossians two, uh, two going through verse eight. So let me get flipped to it here. And I suspect that we'll have quite a bit to talk about here on this topic. Um, so in Colossians, which I can get turned to it here. Next time I'll have to pull these up on my <laughs> on my computer. All right, in Colossians two, got it. So here, uh, starting off in uh, verse 2, I think it's verse 2. Let me look at my outline here. Yeah, in Colossians 2, it says this. So he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, those at Laodicea, those who have not seen me face to face, that their heart may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance in Christ, uh, the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ, in whom all of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hidden. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent, um, he says, uh, though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And uh, he says, not according to Christ. So behind, he said, so he talks about, make sure that nobody takes you captive by philosophy. Yeah. But uh, by human traditions, because why? Because behind these things are elemental spirits who are at work. So, now, some people talk about uh, that he means not elemental spirits, but elemental principles. But I'm going to show you in a minute why I don't think that that interpretation is actually viable. Um, so there's one passage that makes reference to elemental spirits. There's some strange things going on here, right? We've got things outside of Christ, philosophies and worldviews outside of Christ. And Paul says that behind them are elemental spirits. Okay, now, another passage going on here is Galatians, um, Galatians 4.3, okay? So in Galatians 4.3, Paul, again, makes reference to uh, elemental spirits, elemental, princ elemental principles. Um, so here's the context of what's going on in Galatia. Uh, these people here have come in contact with a group of heretics called the Judaizers. Basically, what they want them to do is to not just believe in Christ, but also to take upon themselves the Jewish markers of the covenant. Like they're saying that like, okay, in order to follow Christ, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to, you've got to go back to the law. You've got to do these things. You've got to do that thing. And Paul's got a lot to say about that. And uh, one of the things that he's going to say about it is he's going to actually rebuke them and say that this is going back. This is being led to see, this is being deceived by elemental spirits. Is basically what he's going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Galatians four, three though, uh, he talks about, uh, he says, uh, he talks about that 
Um, we are now sons and we are heirs, right, of God through Christ. Uh, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he is an owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, uh, he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary spirits of the world, the elementary principles of the world or the elemental spirits. Uh, but when the fullness of time had came, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So basically, Paul talks about those before they knew Christ were under the elemental spirits. Now, some are going to be say, yeah, but it's talking about elementary principles here. It's not actually talking about spiritual beings. I'm going to say, oh, whoa, 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 we need to back up here a little bit. We need to go to Galatians 3. Because Paul actually talks about the law. So, so people might say, no, he's talking about going back to the law, these elementary principles. But yeah. Paul sees it more as more than that. He sees it going back to angelic intermediaries in Galatians 3.19. So listen to what he says in 3.19. Well, I'll start off in 15. He says, uh, no, no, I'll start in... Yeah, I'll start in 3.15. It says, to give a human example, brothers, even uh, with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Uh, so he's, he's just talking about law and promise and stuff like that here. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham, to his offspring, does not say to offsprings, referring to many. Um, but going on down here in verse 19, he says, so why then the law? He says, why then the law? Well, he says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So he's basically saying God gave the law because of transgression. And it's there until the seed, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, comes. And he says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And he says, it was put in place by angels through an intermediary. <laughs> yeah. So going back to the law, going back to philosophies now, uh, not there are not Christ Jesus to connect it back to Colossians, is going back to elementary principle, elementary, elemental spirits which Paul equates to angels giving the law. Yep. So he says that even the law is not given by, like it's given by angels. And so that's, that's kind of some of Paul's worldview here. It's not just going back to elementary, elementary principles, as some may want to argue, going back to rules and, and regulations and things like that. But in Paul's mind, it's more than that. It's not just that, but it's also going back to elemental spirits and angelic beings who are behind the giving of those things altogether. So, yep. So, did you have any run in uh, with elemental spirits uh, in the occult? Um, I know it's a big thing in the occult. I know there are uh, occultists that work exclusively with elemental spirits. Mm. I mean, they, they seem to have half the story. So they view the, they don't have a backstory for where the elemental spirits come from. They just know that the elemental spirits are guardians of nature, guardians of creation, that they've clothed themselves in the various elements. But when you add in the Bible's interpretation of these things, it really gives it a fuller picture. It was, it's a picture that I didn't have when I was in the occult world. Yeah. Yeah. And here's one of the things that I've noticed is that most, uh, most mythologies of countries and peoples out there have these things in them. Like I was shocked 
whenever I started getting into, you know, some of the stories of other countries and some of the mythologies behind them, whenever I found out, um, and it's interesting because a lot of these peoples, um, actually have the story put forth in Enoch. Um, and, and like, it's, it's a part of like their, their country's histories. Um, you know, so for example, um, uh, there, there are some countries out there like, uh, you know, Scotland and Ireland and Scandinavia who we have family from, um, yep. that has stories about fairies and things like that. Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, it being called the Fae and things yep. like that. And the interesting thing is, is they are working off of the story in Enoch. And so the fairies are made, uh, some of these fallen beings who come down, these elemental spirits come down. Right. And so like legend, legend, you know, this is what a lot of the, like, uh, Celtic legends are built off of, uh, even Scandinavian, uh, you know, getting up into the Nordic regions, a lot of it's, it's built off of this same worldview. <laughs> Like yeah. they may have a part of the story, but they're building off of this same story. Um, it's really, it's really interesting um, though. Uh, like, so there's an Irish tale of uh, it's there. It's uh, these beings called the Tuatha de Danon. And they, uh, they refer to these beings as fairies. Um, but the interesting thing is in the, the tale, they were once worshiped as gods and goddesses, you know, things like that. So, what's going on there with the, the Tuatha Danon and things like that is in these, you know, mythologies, well, mythologies and, you know, yeah. those things that stories out there, these tales is they're actually coming in contact with real biblical spiritual beings. Yeah. And it's interesting too, uh, the Puritans. Now some of our reform folk listening might just be totally just put off by this and think that it's superstition and you know, that kind of thing. Oh I, yeah, absolutely. You know, but it's really interesting though, because the Puritans even had a category for this too. They called them hobgoblins. Yep. Yeah. So uh, it's a, uh, it, I've actually got something here in front of me. It says certain traditions tell us that fairies were demons, uh, which, which I don't think that um, I think the demons are something else fits into the same story. Um, but, but, but not the same. It says the belief became popular to, uh, with the start of Puritanism uh, with the hobgoblin. So apparently even the Puritans ran into elemental spirits and started calling them hobgoblins. So yeah, there's so many rabbit holes that I want to dive into like right now. Yeah. I've been trying to restrain myself the whole episode. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to show her hand here a little bit. We're going to yeah. talk about some of this stuff a little bit more in fuller depth. Um, we're going to talk about some fairy circles and stuff like that later on. I was like, if he's jumping into the Fae already, <laughs> we're going to be here for hours. Yeah. Well, we'll give people, we'll give some of our listeners a little break from some of the biblical stuff that we're, I, I've drowned people in scripture in this episode and some biblical stories. So some people might need the, the, the little break. Here. Hey, without the foundational stuff, none of this is going to make sense going yeah. forward. Yeah. You've got, you've got to have it. But and here's I think why you've got to have it. You've you've got if you don't have this story in mind and you don't have these categories for spiritual beings in your mind as a Christian, what will happen is you're going to run across things like this and you're going to say that's mythology, that's that's fairy tales, yeah. Um, that's people don't don't come actually come across this type of stuff. This isn't real, and um, you're going to end up kind of looking foolish because the Bible yeah. has categories for these things. Yep, you need and, the categories to make the connections. Yeah, and, and honestly, you you can't really make a lot of sense of the world without these categories. Like you you, and once you have them under your belt, 
like I can read Irish folk tales and come across the Tuatha Danon and fairies and things like that. I'm like, oh, well, I know exactly what these beings are. The Bible has yeah, categories yeah. for these, you know, uh, and the biblical worldview has categories for this stuff. So if you don't have that under your belt, um, you're just going to, you're going to just write a lot of this stuff off and you're just going to read it mythologically, which, you know, I'm not saying that there, it's not mythological. It is, but um, you're not going to understand a lot of the things that are happening in there that could be uh, true elements and things like that. So, okay. All right. Now we're going to go into the last section for our spiritual beings episode, which are, the principalities and the princes. And this is going to be an interesting section as well, because this kind of gets into the idea of things like territorial spirits and things like yep. that. Uh, okay. All right. So pick up the biblical story again. I know that I've made all kinds of, okay. So we, we, we was there in the beginning with God. We saw the creation of the sons of God. We talked about the creation of man and the woman. We talked about their fall. We talked about the cherubim. We talked about the seraphim. We talked about, their seed corrupting the world going up through the global flood, right? With Noah we talked about the sons of God there. We talked about the Nephilim. So we've got, we're almost in the first 11 chapters of Genesis now. Okay. Now the next set of spiritual beings that we are introduced to are the principalities and the princes. Now in Genesis chapter 11, one through nine, we encounter the tower of Babel story, which almost everybody is familiar with, right? Everybody has heard this story. Even if you're listening and even if you're a pagan or a, if you're a, you know, a non-Christian, you've heard of the Tower of Babel story, right? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so in this story, we see the whole earth. They have one language. They have the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shiner. They settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Let us burn them for thoroughly. And then they, took, they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top that's up in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And so we know what happens next. The Lord God came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. This is the only, only the beginning of what they will do. So this is very similar, repeating the, the pattern of Genesis in some ways, of Genesis 3, right? God comes down, yep. he examines the work, and here there's another fall that happens. Um, he says, so they say, uh, behold, they are one people. They all have one language. This is the only the beginning of what they'll do. Nothing they would propose will be impossible for them now. Uh, so come, let us go down and then confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the earth. And from the Lord, uh, from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Okay, everybody's familiar with that story. Everybody knows that story. Uh, regardless of who you are, even if you're a pagan, you know that story. Um, now, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, actually comments on this. So, it's kind of like the creation story we read earlier, right? How there's more going on behind the story than what meets the eye. There's more going on with this story than meets the eye as well. Okay. So, in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, we see that, well, it says this. 
when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples. Okay, when was it God did that? What was in the story we just read in Genesis 11, right? God yep. scattered and divided the nations at Babel. Okay, it says the Most High gave the, the nations their inheritance. When he divided the mankind, he fixed their borders to the people according to, oh, here we are. We're going to get introduced to some spiritual beings again. He, came, he, he fixed their borders according to the number of the sons of God. <laughs> same, wow. same category of spiritual beings that we saw in Genesis 6. Same category of spiritual beings that we saw in the creation with the sun, moon, and stars. Uh, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay. So basically what's going on is this. The nations want to rebel against God, just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, right? They want to make a name for themselves. And so God says, okay, you want to do that? I'm going to disinherit you. I'm no longer going to speak with you. Uh, you know, th this isn't that unfamiliar to us. Um, some people, back in the day, people used to disinherit family members, <laughs> okay? And so what would happen was you would have someone else speak to them on your behalf because you're not dealing with them anymore. Yeah. That's what God is doing with the nations. God is disinheriting the nations, and he's chosen at this point Israel to be his portion. Israel doesn't exist yet. Israel's not going to exist until later on. But that's basically what God's doing. He's setting this up so that he would create this people. It's not even until the next chapter that God calls Abraham. He calls Abraham. Abraham's a pagan. He's worshiping other gods in Babylon, in, in the Mesopotamia area. God calls him out of that. And then later on, through, through Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel will finally exist. But in this event, God is disinheriting the nations. He's no longer dealing with them, and he sets over them the sons of God. They're gonna, they're gonna, they're gonna work for God. Like He's not gonna deal with them anymore. They're gonna deal with them. Now, what happens is this: like the sons of God uh, in in Genesis, uh, Genesis three, like the seraphim, uh, Satan, who goes astray and rebels against God. Like the sons of God of Genesis six, who rebel against God and take strange human flesh for themselves. These sons of God are going to rebel against God as well. And they are going to become the gods, little g gods of the nations. So God actually rebukes them in Psalm 82. He says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, little g gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, you shall die like men, fall like any prince. So, they set themselves, they rebel against God. They set themselves up as gods of the nations. They take the worship of these nations. The nations are plunged into darkness, it says in verse 5. They walk about in darkness. And now God calls them to himself and he says, You guys have set yourselves up here. Uh, you are gods, sons of the Most High, and nevertheless, you're going to die like men. You're going to fall like princes. I'm going to, he's going to, God's going to take them out. Yeah. 
So this is where the, the name princes gets attached to these, these spiritual beings. Okay. They're going to fall like princes. They are the, the princes of the nations, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so anyway, now I want to, I want to anticipate maybe some objections and some concerns here. You're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying there are other gods out there. Well, yeah. uh, so I that's know definitely that, going to come up. That's definitely going to come up. It was like, whoa, you're, are you a polytheist or something? No, no, well, that's, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying at all. Um, they, they are posing as the gods. That's why I said little G gods. They're posing of the little G as the little G gods of the nations. These are created beings. God created these beings. And like Satan, who is called the God of this world, the God of this age in the New Testament, they are posing as God, stealing worship. So this is where, this is where Egypt gets their gods from. This is where, I mean, it's, it's really, really, that the whole table of nations event and all of that in Genesis, this is where Canaan gets their gods from. This is where yep. Egypt gets their gods from. Um, this is where all of these places... You know, uh, well, you know, some of the nations that are living there, I mean, there's just so many. I think there's like 70, I think, altogether. I ought to have to go back and look. But this is where Cush um, and Egypt and Canaan, they come from Ham. You know, this is going back to, to Noah. But they all come into this event, and this is where they get their gods from. The gods of Egypt, the gods of Cana, the gods of – these are spiritual beings who have rebelled against God, who are posing as gods. They are created beings. They are not ontologically like the one true God. He is eternal, right? He is is high above them. None are like him, Isaiah says, right? There are no gods like him. In comparison, there are no other gods. But they are real spiritual beings who are taking worship from the one true God. So hopefully that answers that question a little bit. No, they are not like the Lord God. They are created beings. They're not actually god right but they are posing as gods and so that's why the bible is using some of this language so this is so it's really interesting too because a lot of people would would think that oh you guys uh who are pagans you're just worshiping um you know stones and gold and you know idols made of hands right but in the biblical worldview especially according to psalm 82 there's way more going on than just that Right. Absolutely. And that's the major division you see today between the Christians and the pagans. You have the pagans that'll just outright accuse Christians of not even having the categories for the gods that they worship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's what's going on here. I mean, like you, you have real, uh, real spiritual beings behind the nations here. And we're going to see that a little bit. We're going to see that a little bit more uh, here in a few minutes, whenever we hit Daniel and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there was even a, a rituals in the ancient world. And you can Google this and you, know, you can pull it straight up called opening the mouths of the gods or opening the nostril ceremonies, now, opening the mouth. Yeah. What would happen was they would make idols. Okay. Like they would make idols made out of wood and gold and all of these things. But what they would do is they would do a ceremonial ritual where they would open the mouth of that idol. And yeah, then, the idol becomes like a conduit yeah, host. The, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so the God would come and embody in this idol. So it's it's not one or the other. It's both and. Like they did create idols, but they also had real spiritual beings who are not God, but who are posing as God, who would come and embody that thing. So Exactly. So 
we may have pagan listeners here who are listening, right? Like who may, we may have people who are listening who are into witchcraft and um, who are, who may be pr- practitioners of other religions. And they've maybe been wondering what the Bible, like how, like what the Bible says about some of this stuff. Well, this is, this is kind of the biblical worldview on this stuff, right? This yeah. is- I know we have a lot of pagan listeners. I've been interacting with a few of them on uh, Instagram over the past few, what, few days. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. But like, I think that most Christians would say you, you, you're interacting with a figment of your imagination or something like that. Yeah. And we would say, no, you really are interacting with a real spiritual being out there, but it's, it's the one that you, it's the one that you don't want to be interacting with. You want to be interacting with the one true God. Right. So, okay. All right. Well, good stuff here. Okay. Now, and again, to show that these are real spiritual beings who are, over the nation. Oh, there's another passage here. Uh, some people may hear my, hear what I just read from, uh, Psalm 82. And they may say, yeah, but the gods listed there, those aren't spiritual beings. Those are men. Like that's a big time argument used against, against that interpretation of it. But the problem is, is the same exact language gets used in Psalm 89 and listen to what it says in Psalm 89. Um, and starting in verse, Five. I'll start there. Okay, so we, we saw that God stood in the midst of his assembly, right? Said the divine council. Well, God in Psalm 89, um, it mentions his assembly and his, his council again. Listen to what it says. It says, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly, the council of the holy ones. So where's the assembly? Verse five, in the heavens. For who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Oh, and if that wasn't clear enough, who among the heavenly beings (laughs) is like the Lord? Oh, a God greatly to be feared in the council. There's the Psalm 82 language again. Assembly, God to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Right? Oh, Lord God of hosts. These are the hosts. These are the heavenly hosts from Genesis two, Genesis one. Yeah. Right? Who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around? So, it's basically saying the same thing. God, heavens, the the this council in heaven is praising Lord. He is far above them, right? He is high above them. They are not on his level ontologically. But it's very clear that this assembly. This council of holy ones and spiritual beings that we talked about as being posing as gods in Psalm eighty-two, these are the these are heavenly beings. Verse six, verse six of uh, Psalm eighty-nine. They are the holy ones in the skies. It says so. These are not earthly kings. <laughs> let Scripture. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and Scripture interprets them as being heavenly spiritual beings. Yep. We can just put that argument to rest now. It's it's dead. Yeah, I don't see how you can interpret that any other way. Yeah, if you want to argue that Psalm 82 is talking about human kings, then you have to ignore Psalm 89, which takes the same language of Psalm 82 and says that they are beings in the sky. Unless you want to talk about exalted human beings who, who Scripture says has never seen God, then that's the only way you can make that argument. Now, somebody also might want to make that same argument for, for Deuteronomy 32, right? The nations are divided and given to the sons of God. Some people try to say, oh, those are heaven. heaven those aren't heavenly beings. Those are uh, the rulers of Israel, the sons of Israel. 
God gives the nations to Israel. The problem is with that interpretation that in Genesis chapter 11, of the Tower of Babel event, Israel does not yet exist. Yep. Abraham hasn't even been called at this point. So, all right. So let me, let me go ahead and move on now. We, I know we've taken up a, this is a long episode. Um, so the next passage I want to talk about is Daniel 10. So in Daniel chapter 10, we see uh, talk of these princes again. Okay. Uh, so there in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a terrifying vision. Okay. And there in his vision, he sees, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You guys can go read all of Daniel 10 for yourselves. There's a lot there. Um, and I can't be, even begin to unpack that right now. But starting in verse 18, it says, again, one having the appearance of a man, he touched me and he strengthened me. He said, oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and be of good, good courage. And he spoke to me. Uh, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return against the prince of Persia. So there's the prince. Yeah, like spoken of in the spiritual being, and you know, in Psalm eighty-two, God says you're talking to these sons of God. He said you're going to die like any prince. So this is where they get the name prince attached to them. So there is a prince over Persia. He says, and I will go out, and and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So there's a prince of Greece over this geographical area as well. But I tell you, uh, he says, the prince of Greece will come, but I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Now, we know that Michael is an archangel. Absolutely. He is a higher form of angel, and he is the prince of people of God's people. So not only do these spiritual beings pose as the gods and they're the, the rulers over these geographical areas and regions and stuff like that, but God's people also has one of them. Michael, Daniel says in, in Daniel chapter 10. And he does battle against these spiritual beings who are over the nations, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So it, really interesting. Uh, I was, I think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, I have seen in occult type stuff, people call on the principalities. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. There's a movie adapted from one of H.P. Lovecraft's short stories called The Color Out of Space. And it starts off, this girl's doing, you know, she's got her a, a, a circle drawn, like she's making sacred space, and she's got a pinnacle in it. And uh, she calls upon the principalities in it. So people in ritual work seem to call upon these beings. Really interesting. Okay. Now, absolutely. So, all right. Now, actually, I want to say that this, these rulers and principality stuff, so later on in the New Testament, they uh, end up called principalities. So they're called prince, sons of God, then they get called princes. Then Paul calls them principalities and rulers. So in uh, Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, this is a famous passage that every Christian knows. It's the armor of God passage. You need to put on the armor of God, Right? Everybody knows that passage. Yeah. Well, here's the reason why you need to put on the armor of God. He says, <laughs> he says uh, finally, be strong in the Lord put a, in, uh, in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. Um, for, here's the reason why you need to put on the armor of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the principalities or the authorities, against 
<laughs> he says, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul, Paul yeah, you Paul, see people just so loosely quote, quote that section of, of scripture without even the slightest notion of what it actually means of what's behind it. Yeah. And it, it comes, it ties all the way back into, to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 32. And it ties all the way back into Genesis 11 with this, this sons of God tower of Babel event, handing them over to the sons of God. Paul. Yeah. See, so he's taken the Psalm language of Psalm 82 with, they're going to fall like any prince. And he's taken the Daniel language of Daniel 10, where he call, refers to them as princes. So Daniel's working with the Psalm 82 language as well. He takes that language, and then he begins to call them principalities. And principality simply means the same thing. They're, they're rulers. A principality is a prince. It's a, a principality is an area ruled by a prince. So that's what's going on here. It's the same language, even though it's a little tweaked a little bit. But Paul says... The reason why you need to wear the armor of God is because whenever you're going into these nations and you're sharing the gospel, these nations that are in this present darkness, you're not rule, fighting against flesh and blood. You're fighting against the rulers and the principalities. Dark, yeah, yeah. dark spiritual forces, cosmic powers in heavenly places. He says, that changes your view of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. It really does. Changes your view of the world. That, that means that behind the evil of nations aren't just depraved people. That's there. That's true. But it's true too, um, in verse 15 particularly, but I'm going to back up a little bit here and we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more. So in verse 11, Jesus, or not Jesus, but Paul says this about Jesus. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here he's talking about regeneration. Like, You've been, but you've you've received a, a, a circumcision without hands, right? You've put off the body of flesh. You've become regenerated. That kind of thing. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, through the powerful working of God. So he says, uh, who raised him from the dead. So we're we're talking about, you know, regeneration. You know, yeah, all of that stuff here. Then he, it's interesting in verse thirteen. He says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, right? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So now we're getting into the, to the idea of Jesus's atonement, like what it accomplishes. And it, here's what it accomplishes. Paul says it, um, he says that it cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. It's forgiven us of all of our trespasses. It's been nailed to the cross, right? So that, that's not all. In the concluding verse here in 15, Colossians 2.15, here's an, another dimension, a cosmic dimension that the Apostle Paul says that it accomplished. Listen, he says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the principalities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the language that Paul also uses in Ephesians 6, he, he uses the same exact language, rulers, authorities, principalities, for cosmic powers, right? We just, we just talked about it. And then he says that in the cross, Jesus disarms and triumphs over them, right? So they no longer had the authority that they once had. Christ has disarmed them. And now, this is the reason why Jesus tells his disciples in the Great Commission, 
This is the, these are the concluding words of Jesus. These are the, the last words that he speaks to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew. And it puts all of it into a new light whenever you have this framework in your head. Listen to what he says. So it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them, and he said to them, listen to what he says to them. And you're going to see how it ties in here. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They no longer have it. They no longer have the authority. Yep. I now have all authority. And now because of this, he says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So we take Paul together with Jesus. He has disarmed the rulers and the principalities. They no longer have the authority that they once had. He now has all authority in heaven and on earth. And now, because of that, we can go into the nations and make disciples. So, now, that doesn't mean that the rulers and the principalities aren't still around. They are. Uh, they still want control. They still, uh, they are entities that still um, are going to one day be put under the foot of, of Jesus and cast into the lake of fire. That day has not yet arrived. But, they no longer have the type of authority that they once had back in the old covenant era of things. So, I mean, Paul, as a believer, this is post, this is after the resurrection of Christ. He says in Ephesians six that we still battle with these things, right? He says that it's the reason why we need to put on the armor of God, but Jesus's cross does have something to say to these spiritual beings. And so I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to that, that section that's that concludes the section on the principalities and the princes and the powers and all that. So I think you pretty much covered it pretty well. Yeah. And uh, so that, that pretty much does it for this episode. This should bring us into about uh, getting close to about an hour and a half on this episode. And so as we wrap up uh, Richie and I want to foreshadow a little bit about what we're going to (laughs) talk about in the coming weeks. Uh, The first thing that we're going to talk about is there was a really, really interesting story that happened with this podcast and we'll, we'll talk about it in in next, next week's chin. Absolutely. So tune in then and a really interesting story to go along with this. Um, But to foreshadow some of the other things that we're going to talk about um, it, uh, if, it, it seems to me that if you look at the stories of some of these spiritual beings that we looked at in today's episode, right? Like the sons of God coming down to, uh, you know, the daughters of men and intermingling and then, you know, rulers. If, if you understand these stories and kind of become familiar with their pattern, I think that you actually see very similar patterns at work today in things like, UFOs and cryptids. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We've already talked about fairies in this episode. Uh, I think that we maybe even mentioned UFOs at the beginning. I can't even remember now. Um, but I, I think that what we, the foundation that we laid today with this episode on spiritual beings, I think that it's going to actually help us in coming to grasp with things like UFOs, things like cryptids and how it's going to give us a framework on how we should look at some of these things. We've talked about it a little bit, um, but I think that it's really going to help us in understanding some of what's going on there in that type of phenomena. So absolutely. We're really refocusing what unified field theory is in the paranormal. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that we've talked about that a little bit in another episode that we did, but that's, that's pretty much exactly what it's doing. It, it's kind of giving us a, uh, a refocused version of, of uh, John Keel wrote about a unified theory of the paranormal, right? And, you know, uh, basically, you know, a short overview of that is, you know, he thinks that there is this uh, ultra terrestrial behind all of the fun, the paranormal phenomena out there, right? Like yeah. you have an ultra terrestrial that manifests itself to some people as an angel as some people to a demon uh, as a UFO, as a Sasquatch, you know, some of that kind of stuff. And I think that he has some good things to say um, about, about some of, about that theory, right? I think that, that he has some legitimacy uh, there with it. But what we want to do is we want to take that and tweak it a little bit and bring it into, uh, refocus it and make a little bit more sense out of it with the Bible. Uh, and yeah, just taking how, it to its logical next steps. That's, that's exactly right. And so I think that this episode, uh, I think it has a lot to say to Christians, but I think that it also has a lot to say to folks who are out there in the paranormal community and then even Absolutely. out there, uh, even in the uh, community that's that's uh, in paganism, uh, I think that we have a lot to say to those folks uh, that, uh, that will be of interest. And so if you're listening, uh, thank you. We appreciate you uh, listening and in on this conversation. We hope that you continue to, to join us as we have these conversations because over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be discussing now uh, ufology, and cryptids so that'll be yep. the uh that'll be the next few episodes big episodes we do so next week we'll do a chin wag and then the week after that we'll do an, a big episode again like this and use the foundation that we laid here and we'll bring it into we'll focus in on ufos that type of phenomenon then we'll have another chin wag after that and then in the next big episode we have to that after that, then we'll bring this foundation that we've laid in this episode and then the next episode. And then we'll look at things like cryptids, things like Sasquatches, fairies, <laughs> you know, all kinds of stuff that you, some of the yeah. things we've talked about already uh, in today's episode. So. Yeah, we definitely need the, the chin wag episodes in between to kind of let some of this digest with some folks out there. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, you know, uh, also in that, those chin, the weeks where we have the chin wags, um, use it to re-listen to these episodes, go back and listen to some of the scripture references that we talked about, listen to some of the arguments that we presented and, um, you know, see if, see if what we're, what we're saying is true. And if it lines up, right, don't just take our word for it. Um, the Bible talks about these things and we don't have to be afraid of that, but, but yeah, do, do, uh, do due diligence and research it, you know? check out, check out some of the things we're saying. And, uh, yeah, so, but, uh, that's where we're going over the next few weeks should be a very interesting time. I suspect that this, this, uh, yeah. episode will have a lot of reactions to it. Um, and, uh, I think it'll be good. I don't think that there's anything out there quite like what we've done in this episode. So really looking forward to the feedback from it. And so looking forward to what we've got planned next. So you got anything else before we head off on this episode? No, I'm good. Okay. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We hope that it was helpful. We hope that you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Later. See you.